Radio Boise, in collaboration with The Modern Hotel, presents Campfire Stories, readings by notable local authors recorded live from the patio at The Modern Hotel in downtown Boise. We'll get it rolling here in just a minute. David Abrams is in the house. He's right over there. He's getting ready to be our first reader for the final installment of the 2012 Campfire Stories. Sorry, I thought he was yelling at me. So, yeah, first of all, I guess, of course, so many things to go around. Obviously, The Modern Hotel and uh, Restaurant and Polly and Elizabeth and um, Michael, who's not here. I want to thank them so much for the asking me to help sort of curate and put the, the readers together for this and be a part of, you know, something that's clearly become kind of a nice, like, you know, new iconic thing in, in Boise to the literary scene. I feel like people have been showing up and enjoying the atmosphere and the great words. And so, you know, it's a little sad to see it come to a close for the season, but I think it's actually probably about right for outdoor events such as this. So um, I think you guys hopefully will be warm enough. There are blankets. Once again, Polly has some over here if you need one. Just ask. So that said, Rediscovered Books, I want to thank you guys. They're over here with books to sell. Um, so, and any book they have, I don't know what you guys have, Fobbit, you have that, yes, there we go. <laughs> and we have Bolt and we have Naked Me, I guess, which we'd all be happy to sign if you desire such things. So, um, a couple of events that I know about for them, at least one particular event I wanted to announce is their Small Business Saturday, which is after Black Friday. That's kind of a cool event that for many small businesses in town and actually across the country. So just to kind of be like, no, we're not going to go to the mall. We're going to go to Rediscovered Books and buy some stuff. So there's actually going to be a couple of writers there, myself included. Um, it's just a Kind of we're going to be clerking, we're going to be, you know, suggesting certain books, and so it's kind of a cool thing to be a part of that, and um, that's on the 29th, I believe, so after Black Friday, the Saturday. So there's that. Radio Boise is over here, recording and providing the sound. Let's give them this. Absolutely. And they have put together, you know, some podcasts that you guys can get to from their website um, that have the, the poetry and the stories that have been told, you know, all summer long here. So um, I just say thanks so much for you guys. And then Al Heathcock and David Abrams are going to be our readers tonight for these, this final installment. And um, it's been so great. I thought I'd just go through a litany of folks who have read, and hopefully I didn't leave anybody off this list, but Jay Rubin Appleman and Matthew R.K. Haynes were our first readers back in June. And then Laura Rogar, Carrie Webster, Nicole Cullen, John Rember, Martin Corliss-Smith, Sam Silva, J.C. Erickson, Tish Thornton, and I think that's about it. So make sure I didn't forget anybody. And also, next year is going to happen again. That's our plan. So what I think we're going to do is probably come March have a Story Fort kind of kickoff, like pre-Tree Fort, Story Fort um, reading here out on the patio. Probably in March, we'll look at uh, what date for sure, but that'll kind of like introduce maybe the new season for the campfire stories, and so it's been a, a great success and super fun to be a part of. So, um, I guess yeah, let's just get Dave up here. So, I wanted to say that he's you know one of the most generous you know writer fellows um, I've met in a long time, as far as just a man who's clearly into the craft and into the you know, I guess he just appreciates great words. He uh, does it. He runs a blog, writes a blog. It's kind of more than a blog. It seems like I don't know what how to even define the high end of a blog, but it has. I mean, it's amazing. A number of you know reviews. It's called the Quivering Pen. I'd encourage you guys to go check it out. He actually re you know reviewed uh, Mr. Heathcock's book when it came out, and uh, 
I got hooked up to that review when I was kind of putting together one, one for his book too. And, you know, I've just uh, been amazed by his generosity. He had myself and a couple of other writers up to Butte where, he's, uh, where he lives now. Um, and his book, Fobbit, is amazing. So, and he's going to read from his new novel and a couple of shorter pieces, but um, the novel, <clears throat> the Fobbit, is set in Iraq, and um, it sort of is a kind of, it was described as mash, mashed up, if you will, with like Catch-22. And I thought that was a pretty good description of the uh, kind of the dark humor and the time of war and crisis. And that's kind of his, his take, his angle on, on the writing about uh, Iraq that I've read. So um, I don't know that I need to say much more than that, except for thanks for coming down from Butte. And come on up and read to us. Hello, Boise. Well, first of all, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run a quick litany of thanks. Thanks to Polly and the modern staff for this great, great venue. Um, obviously, this is my first campfire story. Some of you are probably regular attendees. You have little membership punch cards or something. But um, this is a great place to do it. And um, I feel sorry for you guys in the back. You don't have a campfire. If you, if you start to feel frostbite, just come on up and you know sit by, sit by a couple fires up here. Um, and thanks, thanks, of course, to Christian for, for starting this and, and for, for inviting me, so generously inviting me to come down from, from Butte, America. Um, it was a nice drive, nice seven-hour drive, just pure interstate the whole way. But I did make a quick stop. Oh, and I also want to thank Alan for allowing me to share the podium uh, with him tonight. I'm a, I'm a, uh, I'm a big, big fan of his work. Um, so you can go onto the blog and, and see what I've had to say. But I did make a quick uh, detour to, to Sun Valley to catch them last night, uh, where uh, Sarah up at Iconoclast, are you here, Sarah? She, she was going to make it. OK, she's running late, as always. Um, she was even late to her book club last night. But she had me come, um, uh, she had me come up to Iconoclast up in, up in Ketchum uh, to, the, to the Brownies and Bourbon Book Club. And um, you know, uh, tip, tip to everybody who's going to thinking about starting up a book club. Brownies are good, but bourbon is even better. Uh, it was good. It was a good, uh, it was a good uh, event uh, talking about Fobbit. But I like campfires, too. So that brings us here. And I'm going to stop chattering about uh, inane stuff and just get right to the stories, because you came for the stories, campfire stories. Um, OK, I'm going to read a couple of short, uh, short, short pieces uh, first. Uh, this first one, you should know I like to read obituaries. Uh, I read the uh, obituaries in the, uh, uh, the newspaper up in Butte, Montana, every day. And some really interesting stuff uh, that you find there uh, about people's lives. It always, it always depresses me and makes me uh, very aware of my mortality when I'm reading these obituaries. And it's like, oh my god, my time's coming soon. Um, but one of them, um, one of the... Uh, Obituaries was from Great Falls. Or, uh, here we go. Ah, light. Uh, it was from Great Falls, and uh, I'm just going to read you the obituary, um, and then I'll get into the story. So this is an actual snippet. I just left out her, her name. Great Falls, Montana, O.H., died peacefully at Community Hospital of Great Falls on Monday, June 21st, 2010, from a little bit of everything. And so that was the obituary, and of course, you know, I could not let that go. So here's the story, a little bit of everything. It wasn't just that cancer or the chemo 
or the loss of the right breast, or the swollen postulating nymph, no lymph nodes, or the bed sores, or the headaches, or the embarrassment of the loose, watery bowels. It wasn't only the shock of getting the news from the doctor at age 58, the news that after all these years, long after her breasts could, could be rightfully called dusty dugs, hanging useless and frankly unwanted, the misaligned cells had split and remarried in ways never intended by God. It wasn't all the looks on all the other faces, Alice, Esther, Jill, Lord, Jack, Mary Lou, and that nice boy down at Western Grocers who had always bagged her food with a company policy smile, an expression like a hard pat of butter hitting a hot pan. It wasn't even the, it wasn't even the indignity of spending the last days in the hospice care of a stranger from Helena, a woman named Ellen with gum-flavored breath who chirped every morning and on really bad days asked again and again if they shouldn't call someone, her scattered family maybe, or the pastor, or the fact that now she was spending mornings and afternoons staring at a ceiling, her eyes tracing the outline of a water stain shaped like a magpie in flight, or that she could feel her body dissolving, all those years behind melting and all the years to come crumbling. It was all this and a little bit of everything else. It was also the time she fell out of the tree when she was five years old and no one was there to break her fall with one ounce of sympathy or even a band-aid. It was the hard shoulders of her parents. It was the cigarettes that she started at, at age 16 and just as quickly quit at, at 18. It was the bags and bags and bags of Doritos and the occasional pink, pink hostess snowball. It was the starting and stopping of a college education too many times until she finally gave up. It was the two husbands, one of whom gave her true love while the other gave her a child. It was the divorce of the right husband and the heart attack death of the wrong husband. It was the hard work of single parenthood, putting everything into her child, only to find when she was a teenager, or when he was a teenager, it had been like pouring water through a sieve. It was Giles' sullen glances and the long hair that flopped across his face like a pulled curtain. It was sitting at home alone all those nights. It was the absorption of too many TV cathode raids, ra rays from years of bad legal dramas and even worse sitcoms with tin can laugh tracks. It was the churches not attended. It was Ray Lynn who had seduced her son Giles, pregnanting him into a too early marriage. It was how her son and the devil daughter-in-law moved away to a foreign land called Mississippi so soon after the wedding. It was the Christmas and birthday cards for 10 years, and then not even that anymore. It was her face in front of the microwave waiting for her dinner. It was the cats she killed with her love. It was taking phone calls and typing dictations and daily copying for the world's most unappreciative boss. And after 19 years of being there on time every day, getting nothing but an office lunch at Applebee's when it came, when it came her time to leave. It was garden pesticides, the accumulation of paper cuts, the sprained ankle from that brief whim for jogging in 1982, the diets, the binges, the resumption of cigarettes in 1989, and the requitting two months later. It was the gas fumes each time she filled the Toyota's, Toyota's tank, the holes in the ozone, Richard Nixon, talk radio, global warming, and her toxic hatred of the second George Bush's war of opportunity. 
It was Giles not coming to the hospice, but, but twice, both times Ray Lynn holding firm to her pout as she sat outside in the car. And Giles, the whole while torn between filial duty of helping her sip cr cranberry juice through a straw and the stronger pull of Ray Lynn's volatility, volatility, which would fill their car with its own cancer the whole drive home. It was all this and more than she could remember, had time to remember, wanted to remember, as, at last, at last, she slow motion fell away from Ellen's gum breath, which was calling out in worry, and Ellen's eyes, which were already coming up wet. She just fell away from everything which had once mattered too much, the edges of her sight stained with inward flowing ink, falling back, falling back as into a deep well, the walls crumbling upon her, the thing that had been her body now starting a slow spiral, Ellen's face dimming as in the fade out at the end of a movie until finally she landed soft in the merciful blank. Thanks. So the second piece I'm going to read um, is called My Father Cannot Find His Car. Um, no setup really needed. <coughs> By the way, my father can find his car in parking lots, just so you know. There's no, uh, no similarity to real life. Okay. My father cannot find his car in the parking lot. He paces between the lines, head on a swivel, lips pressed white with anger. Anger at himself for losing the car. It is red, the car. A cherry red Subaru, fire engine red. A metallic flame easily seen at a distance. A shade of paint at my mother's insistence. You know, in case they were ever lost in a blizzard and needed a flare of color to guide rescuers to them. And now, my father is lost in the snowstorm of his mind. My father cannot find his car. The parking lot spreads before us, and after we come out of goodbyes, sacks in our hands, my father starts walking the aisles, looking for his beacon of a car. I stand there, frozen at the entrance of the store, triggering the automatic doors, which open, close, open, close, open. The plastic bags pull at my hand with their weight of canned soup, cat food, milk, mouthwash, dish detergent, and a new alarm clock to replace the one my father broke. I cannot move, fear rooting me to the ground in front of the jaw-snapping doors. I cannot deny the undeniable fact that my father's brain is disintegrating. It is going as thin as the hair above it, the hair that, is ha that, that has itself turned into a wisp of memory. It has been this way for a long time, the hair and the brain both. And we've seen it coming from a distance, all of us. But since my father denies its approach, we do what we always do and we agree with him. This is what happens to other people, not us. My father cannot find his car, and yet he paces the parking lot, certain his anger will summon the Subaru. He carries his goodbyes bag in one hand. He has the lighter load, toilet paper, hemorrhoid ointment, a book of crossword puzzles. And in his other hand, he jingles the key ring like it's a bell calling his car to him. My father cannot find his car, and yet, and yet the parking lot is empty of all but two cars, a blood-red Subaru and a good-buys delivery truck parked off to one side. 
My father, shoulders slumped, hair thinning, mouth trembling, brain crumbling, walks past his own car again and again and again. My father cannot find his car, and my heart is breaking. And now on a lighter note, I'm going to read about war. So um, this is from, it's not from Fobbit. Fobbit, uh, for those of you who have read it, um, or read about it even, um, Fobbit is a, a satire. It's a very dark cartoon about war. And, you know, it gets, it gets some laughs here and there and, you know, some grim places. But uh, this, this new novel that I'm working on is a little bit more serious in tone. Um, it's, um, what was I going to say about this? Uh, I read a, um, okay, I read uh, at, the, at, the at the Brownies and Bourbon Book Club's insistence last night, I read a piece from this um, uh, somewhere in the middle of the, uh, of the uh, uh, notebook that I write this down in, and I told them uh, that it's so raw and fresh that, it's, that it still glistens. Uh, well, tonight's piece is even moister uh, because it's, it's from the beginning of the novel and parts of it I've, I've um, you know, I've, I've already uh, written this a long time ago, but uh, a new piece of it came to me uh, today as I was driving from Ketchum down to Boise, and I pulled off like a responsible driver. I pulled off to the side of the road, and I uh, scribbled in my notebook. Um, so some of it is very raw, um, so just bear, bear with me. Um, so it is a work in progress, a whip. Uh, and I really don't have a title for it. I've called it FOB Sorrow. FOB stands for Forward Operating Base in the Army lingo. FOB Sorrow, On Foot, and uh, A Walk in the Sun. None of those really resonate with me, so for right now I'm just calling it my whip because that's what it does. Every time I sit down at the keyboard, it whips me and uh, tells me uh, that I need to keep working, working on it. So there's not much setup uh, to it. Um, it is the one thing that you should know is it's, uh, it's about um, a squad of six soldiers uh, moving from one side of Baghdad to the other during Operation Iraqi Freedom. Um, and it is told um, as a squad. So whenever I say we, it's not referring to an individual narrator. It's referring to the, the squad, the or organism um, as a whole. So it's kind of a collective first person point of view. Again, I'm, I'm playing around with it, experimenting with it. It may not uh, survive the editor's knife. Um, but I'll see how that goes. So I'll leave it at that. <clears throat> we are moving from one side of Baghdad to the other on our 12 feet. Like a mutant dozen-legged beetle crawling from rock to rock, confident in its hard shell, but always careful of the soft belly underneath. We are six men, single file along the alleys, the, the edge of roads, the maze of stone buildings. We are alone, cut off from the rest of the company back at Taji, and now, thanks to a busted drive shaft weakened in last week's IED blast along Route Irish, we are without a Humvee. We are out here in the sun, baking in our gear, throats coated with, a, with dust, adrenaline spiking at an all-time high. We keep moving because if we stop, we are totally fucked. fucked. anyways, no matter how you look at it. From the back, Cheever calls out, Hey, wait up! Keep moving, Chief, Arrow says, not turning his head. He's on point, and he's focused. We wait, we wait for no one, 
We pause for no cheve. It's these blisters, man. My boots are filling with blood. I can feel it. Aw, oh, somebody call the ambulance, says Drew. Fish chimes in. Hey, careful, Cheeve. Uh, we're we're going to start calling you Red Boot. Squish, 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 says, says Drew. Hey, that's enough, guys, says O. His voice softer than the rest of ours. Soft, but hard as a hammer. That's how O rolls. He's always looking out for the other guy. His full name is Olahandro, but we just call him O. Keep it short, simple, simple and sweet, round as a bullet hole. We have every right to give Cheever a rash of shit. He is, after all, the one who left the radio back in the Humvee, forgotten in our mad scramble to get out of what, at the time, looked like a singularly dangerous situation. Seconds after the Humvee shuddered to a stop and we realized it wasn't coming back to life, we were out of there. By the, time we, by the time we regrouped three blocks away and Drew thought, maybe we should just turn ourselves in and call back to headquarters, we realized that Cheever, our RTO, was empty-handed and the situation had just gone from bad to totally fucked. Shit, Cheever said. Shit, 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 shit. Arrow closed his eyes, ground his molars. Don't tell me you left the assault pack back there. Don't fucking tell me that right now. Cheever on dumb repeat. Some of us were all for doubling back and retrieving the prick 119, but Arrow shook his head and said, too late, too late. Haji's already scavenged the whole damn thing by now. We'd be lucky to find a single hubcap spinning in the gutter. Humvees don't have hubcaps, but that was Arrow, always exaggerating to make, th make things seem worse than they were. In this case, though, he had a point. We were f***sville. We blamed Cheever. Never leave a prick 119 in the hands of a stupid prick like him. A, plat a platoon's RTO is supposed to be the smartest guy on the team, on the level of a Yale Law School grad slumming in the army. But we ended up with a total dumb But the fact that Cheever is our RTO probably says more about the rest of us than it does about him. Cheever is the self-appointed jokester in our little band of not-so-merry men. He'll go around saying things like, don't fire until you see the whites of their eggs, or I'm so broke I can't even pay attention. Nobody's laughing at, any, at anything by this point. All kinds of scenarios are going through our heads. We think about Jessica Lynch and all the wrong turns her convoy took in the maze of streets. We think of those poor civilian contractors who were, who were caught and strung up from the girders of a bridge, hanging there for days after their bodies had been burned. They look like big slabs of beef jerky swaying in the breeze. None of us wanted to end up like that. So there we were, a cluster of dumb in the middle of Baghdad. Oh well, at least we had a map. We all reached for our cargo pockets, unsnapped ammo pouches, probed fingers into those tucked away compartments behind our flak vests. Nothing. We looked at each other, swallowing hard, none of us wanting to admit to the others we were swallowing hard. Already we could see how this would play out, like the brutal surprise ending of a movie you can see coming 15 minutes before the credits start the roll. Now what, Park said. We continue on mission, that's what, O said. I mean, do we really have a choice? No, no, we did not. So we came up with a, ha with a hasty plan and a good guess at our current location, and then we moved out. And now, here we are, scuttling from building to building, street by street, vainly trying not to call too much attention to ourselves in a city that already hates us. Arrow, Chief calls again. He's still limping. I'm not kidding, man. 
Arrow doesn't stop, will not stop, until we reach Fob's sorrow safe and sound. That's the mission, and he's intense and focused as a shaft whistling through the air until it funks into the target. Now, Arrow's not his real name. He's tall and he's thin, and he moves like he's been shot from a bow, moving with purpose, a whistling arrow. Come on, Arrow. Shut the f*** up, Cheever, Park snaps. Yeah, we're all walking on blisters, Drew says. Fine, f*** all y'all, says Cheever. He lags behind. Eventually, Arrow is forced to stop, or slow, and then stop. As we pull security, Cheever unties his left boot. We surround him in a ring, M4 barrels pointed out, a bristling pine cone, or pincushion, I'm sorry. We scan the rooftops, the windows, the doorways, watching for Haji. Somebody up there could be, somebody could be up there right now with us in his sights, ready to take us all out with one RPG. Later, we'll look back on this, at least some of us will, and we'll think, we weren't too smart, were we? Bunching up in a cluster like that around Cheever, the fat pudge. But since we know Cheever will pay more attention to himself than he will team security, we pull in close. Cheever has his good points, but selflessness is not one of them. We are six men, Arrow, Park, Drew, O, Cheever, and Fish. And we are moving through the most dangerous sectors of Baghdad, the bubble of the boil, on foot now, thanks to the goddamn drive shaft and its microscopic undetectable cracks. We are on our way to Fob Sorrow to attend the memorial service for Sergeant Morgan. And we are determined to make it there before sundown, all of us alive, all of us intact, all 12 arms and legs still attached. One team, one fight, one brotherhood, just like the poster in our recruiter's office. We look at Cheever's foot outside the boot. It's moist and raw, straight out of a butcher's glass case. There's no blood, but damn, those, bl those blisters do look pretty f bad. Moleskin, Arrow says. Cheever drops his eyes and mumbles, uh, it, it's, it's back at Taji. Camp Taji, our home away from home, is 30 clicks behind us. Well, that's a good place for it, says Drew. Better there than on your foot. There is a sound halfway down the block, a clang of metal, a base plate getting set into position, or the metallic mumblings of crated artillery shells knocking together. We snap back into the moment. Our M4, our M4 rifles bristle. We wait. We listen. We watch. Nothing. And then O says, he can have my moleskin. Bullshit, we cry, Arrow says. You're not giving up your moleskin, O. Why not? Because I said so. Now, several of us think, but don't say. Who, who died and made you king? It's my sh and I can do what I want with it. Arrow continues to scan his sector of fire, says nothing more. O does the same after pulling a patch of moleskin out of his ammo pouch and tossing it to Cheever. We are silent, watching the street and thinking about how Arrow all of a sudden got to be king shit. After a minute, uh, Cheever puts his socks back on his feet. As he laces up his boots, he grumbles and curses us, but that's to be expected, Cheever being Cheever. We move on. Cheever limps, but he keeps up. Staff Sergeant Raphael Morgan was one of the best men we ever had. Rafe was what they call a born leader. Leader. He was so good and persuasive, he'd have been able to get Hitler to apologize. He wasn't a big man, not one to loom over you with a barrel chest and a Sergeant Rock jaw, bullying us with his NCO stripes. 
Rafe never flaunted what he didn't earn. In fact, now that we think of it, Rafe always seemed to be curled into himself, as if apologetic for his stripes and rocker, like he was and forever would be one of us, just another guy among guys. He was short, a stump in the infantry forest, and he used that height to his advantage, swimming below the marauding sergeant major's radar whenever he was looking for an NCO to blame for his own damn cups. Rafe kept, Rafe kept his head down, below shoulder level of his fellow platoon sergeants, and he went about his work without unnecessary chatter and bluster. But don't let his stature and quiet demeanor fool you. He was iron behind that, behind that black velvet. And damn, he was smooth. We used to call him MC behind his back. Milk chocolate, goes down nice and easy. We remember one time, soon after we got a new commanding general back at Fort Drum, word came down from on high that a weekend detail was needed for what turned out to be some special landscaping work. Post-beautification, they called it. Names were chosen, put on a roster, but they didn't tell us, but they didn't tell us what it was all about until it was too late. Captain Bangor uh, gathered us in a huddle after formation on Friday. Dandelions, he said, and we were all like, what? Men, he continued, it seems the new commanding general's wife hates the color yellow, and so we've been ordered to go out and pluck every single dandelion on post. And we were all like, what the f***? But we really didn't actually say that, of course, not in front of old man Banghur. It was up to Rafe to get us through the weekend without all of us going to officer's row, armed with knives, breaking into the CG's quarters, and stabbing him and his wife to death. Or maybe just dumping a bucket of yellow paint on their heads. Hey guys, Rafe said that Saturday morning, our, ba our black garbage bags fluttering in the breeze. Hey, this ain't so bad. We looked at the parade field, the largest plot of grass on all of Fort Drum. It was a carpet of yellow. Sure. Looks bad, Arrow says. Nah, this ain't nothing, said Rafe, giving us a milk chocolate smile. Now, 3-5, they got it bad. They've been out in the field all week, and it only stopped raining yesterday. We knew this, but it was good to be reminded of 3-5's misery. You think they ain't sick of each other's smell by now? And they still got another three days to go. Sucks to be them. But here we are, warm, dry, doing a little gardening for the CG. Can't believe they pay us for this easy shit. It was still a crap detail, and we bitched and we moaned, but we moved forward in a straight line across the parade field anyway, feeling like we'd somehow one-upped 3-5. Besides, Rafe said as we bobbed and plucked, ain't none of you bobbed and plucked, ain't none of you heard of dandelion wine? None of us had. You never read that book by Ray Bradbury about the kid? We stared at him, our faces not moving. Sergeant Morgan, despite what you think by looking at him, was well-read. We were not. Anyway, Rafe went on, I figure we got us enough to make at least a bottle apiece just here at the parade field alone. Just wait till we get over by the housing area. And so we made it through the day, picking dandelions and looking forward to drinking weed wine, which, as it turned out, we never made. That was Rafe, always pulling us through the sh That was why, when we heard everything but one leg had been blasted off his body by the IED, we took it pretty hard. We didn't want to picture the arms and the other leg whizzing through the air like sticks thrown for a dog to catch. We didn't want to think of Rafe's head sailing toward the sun-gold clouds like a football, landing in a weed-choked field 50 meters away. And even in that moment, words rolling through our heads, man, Rafe really lost his head, and 
man, is he out of his mind? And what a numbskull. Gallows humor for the dead. That's how we roll. Still, we took it hard. And later, one of us might have gone outside to the solitude of a concrete bunker and cried until the snot ran. And one of us probably dashed for the latrine, vomit splashing the side of the toilet bowl. But we're not saying who. That's private stuff, and we don't share easily. And so here we are, out in the bullseye center of Baghdad, on foot now, moving through unfriendly neighborhoods with no commo and minimal ammo, but with plenty of love for our, dis dismember or for our dead, dismembered platoon sergeant. Dismembered, but not disremembered. We're doing this for Rafe, and there's no turning back. So that's the work in progress. Have uh, a few questions sort of fielded, David, if you want to stay up here. We'll stay, turn you around. Just because um, I think the context of your, your actual experience in life and the, the subject you seem to go to fairly often, like you said, in the, in the lobby, you know, the obituaries, yes. Um, a certain sort of obituary, I suppose, in the, the war writing. But I, I feel like what you were saying, um, the quote was something along the lines of trying to write your, write your way out of Iraq. And so I'm curious kind of what that means. You, were, you had a 20-year career in the Army yeah. and uh, worked as a journalist and a soldier, obviously. And so I just, I don't know what, I was super curious about, you know, sort of uh, with Fob, but especially how you went to sort of the gallows humor or sort of why the, the and how you thought the, I suppose, the, the comical spin could work with such a, you know, very serious subject. And then you guys could ask questions too. Yeah. So. <laughs> There were about like six questions in that question, weren't there, Kirsten? Yeah, gee whiz. So yeah, I did, I did make kind of the offhand comment to him. I'm trying to write my way out of the war. I want to try, as I showed in those first two pieces, I wanted to try to show or write something not related to Iraq, uh, the Iraq war, Operation Iraqi Freedom. I didn't want to have this label stuck on me. But then um, this, this story about these, these soldiers, um, you know, moving from one side of Baghdad to the other to to honor their, 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 um, their platoon sergeant, it came to me and, you know, like all good stories, I'm sure Alan and Christian and all the other writers out there can relate, you can't, you can't turn away a story when it, when it comes like that. So, so that's what I've been doing for the last, I don't know, year and a half or so. But prior to that, just a quick thumbnail on my background, I was in the Army for 20 years, um, uh, 20 years and 20 days. And uh, I, was, uh, I was at my 17-year mark when I actually went to combat. Um, I, you know, there was Panama, there was Bosnia, uh, there was Haiti, there uh, was Operation Desert Storm, the first Iraq, or the first Gulf War. Um, all of those, I never went uh, to combat. I was, um, I was like Chance Quitting Jr., uh, the, uh, the uh, soldier in my, uh, in my novel that uh, stays back and, you know, hangs around the, the garrison and uh, doesn't really get out into combat and seize the action. So that was me. And then I went over to Iraq with the 3rd Infantry Division uh, in 2005 and was there for a year. And uh, again, really not got, didn't get out into the, into the shit. I just kind of stayed on the FOB, the Ford Operating Base. And uh, I wrote, you know, I wrote in my journal all the time and uh, most of it was really serious stuff that I saw, uh, saw and heard and read about, um, and uh, originally I was going to just, you know, come back and, like everybody else, just kind of write a memoir about my experiences over there, and then 
uh, characters like Lieutenant Colonel Eustace Harkelrode and Captain Abe Shrinkle started suggesting themselves to me and I started forming stories. Um, and they were still fairly serious, but then at some point, uh, one of the characters started telling a joke in the midst of uh, some really terrible stuff, and so I decided to go with the joke, and that's how the humor kind of started, I guess. If that answers your question, I don't know. Anyways, any other questions? Or we'll let uh, we'll take a break, and then Alan yeah, in the back. You're welcome. I don't know if everybody could hear that. She wanted to know if I basically just took my, my journal and, and splashed a coat of paint of fiction over it and then uh, did that, or if there was, um, or if there's kind of a whole rewrite of my experience. A little bit of both, but mostly out of my imagination. Um, these characters, once, once I put them into play, they started doing things that you know, had really no basis in reality, uh, as, you can, as you can imagine if, after you've read it. Um, the there's um there's some diary snippets on, in there from from sergeant gooding um you know the diary of sergeant chance gooding jr and a lot of those are almost almost verbatim from uh from my own stuff but um most of most of the other stuff is is whole cloth out of my imagination yeah He wanted to know uh, what my feelings on Catch-22 and MASH are. Um, I, and like a lot of you probably, I grew up watching MASH um, and grew up watching Gomer Pyle um, and uh, Hogan's Heroes. And so I kind of took a, took a cue from, from those. Um, I think they long ago, decades ago, when I was watching Hogan's Heroes as a kid, um, probably planted the seed of what would eventually become Fobbit. Because if you can make a joke in the midst of a concentration camp during the Holocaust, you know, and have a successful TV show making jokes about it, or, you know, have your have your hands in the in somebody's body operating in mash, um, and you know, make wisecracks, Groucho Marx kind of comments, then maybe maybe we could lighten up a little bit and laugh about the Iraq War. So, um, as far as Catch Twenty Two is concerned, um, everybody has a long list of books that they want to read, you know. Um, kind of a bucket list of books, and Catch-22 was on it, and I'd never read it, uh, even though I'd meant to, until January 2nd of 2005, when I was boarding the plane for Iraq. I, I entered the plane with my rifle in one hand and a copy of Catch-22 in the other, and I was bound and determined to, uh, to enter this war in the right frame of mind. So that's what I did, you know, Major Major and Milo Mender, Minderbender and all of those uh, good characters. So, so they kind of uh, were my initial tour guides to, to, the, uh, to the combat experience. Yes? Mm -hmm. 
Well, well, first of all, my like I like I said at the beginning, my father does not have does not have Alzheimer's, as far as I know. Um, as far as I know, uh, I'm going to tell a story on him real fast, and he's not here to defend himself, so whatever. Um, I think the thing that kind of triggered that story that I wrote about um, was they were at a gas station. He and my mom, uh, mo fairly recently, pulled up to a gas station. He put the nozzle in and, and pumped gas, and then, or started the gas pumping, and then I think he went inside to use the restroom or you know buy a soda or something. He came back out into the car. Um, and he paid for his gas. He came back in, got in the car, started the engine, and drove, started to drive away, and the nozzle was still in the gas tank. So, and of course, he immediately went to blame my mother. You know, why didn't you notice that was there? So, so that kind of, you know, forgetfulness and, you know, just the, just the glaringly obvious um, kind of suggested itself for that story. So, fortunately, I haven't experienced um, great personal loss, pain, you know, death of a close family member. Um, obviously, my grandparents are all, are, gone, are all gone at this point, but I've been fortunate um, not to be affected by that yet. So, so somehow mortality just kind of creep, keeps creeping in, I guess. I don't know. And on that death note, we'll take a break. So go ahead. All right, everybody, so the second half of our final night in the 2014 Campfire Story Series is just about to start here with uh, Mr. Alan Heathcock reading us. Actually, he's going to be speaking to us about the, I guess, the beauties of getting together and, like, listening to story around campfires and the notion of, like, what that means to us as a, as a species in certain ways. I have not heard what he's going to say exactly, but that seems to be, like, the gist of what I got from what he told me. Then he's going to read a story from his great collection, Volt which is um, over there, he'll sign it if you'd like. And you know, he's won an amazing amount of awards and published in great places, just like David Abrams, which I didn't really mention all those places and whatnot, which is just fine, because you just heard him and he's, he's great. So um, I just wanted to say that, you know, Alan is somebody I went to grad school with here at uh, Boise State and studied with Robert Olmsted. And he had actually come from Bowling Green and gotten his MFA there. I believe, and uh, Iowa as an undergrad. And then he had gone off to do a PhD, and then he already had his MFA, but was gonna do a PhD, and it didn't really work out as well as he wanted. He wanted to work with a writer like Olmsted and come here. And so he had a lot of great experience that he brought to really inform me as a writer. I, gotta, I have to admit, you know, I'm in second year or so of my MFA program, and he came in with, you know, I believe, and you can clarify this, but something like 19 straight semesters of workshop at that point, or maybe, who knows, maybe more. Is that about right? Okay, we'll stick with that story then. Um, and, you know, so he had been in workshops a lot, which, you know, we were like, that's a bunch of crap, this guy doesn't really know. Then it's like, actually, yeah, he does know. He brought a lot of wonderful knowledge to me, um, just as a writer, and brought... He, you know, I wrote pretty fast at that time, and I still sort of do, and he's like, slow down actually take your time, tell me a story that matters, you know. And that was something that I definitely learned from reading his, a lot of the early drafts from Volt, um, we had workshopped with Robert Olmsted and um, just seeing them evolve and him taking his time to really make them, well, you know, beautiful, wonderful stories. And um, it just taught me a lot about the process and about sort of, you know, not wanting to be all fancy and just go out there and 
see how many stories you could write, but actually writing great stories. So that's what he's done, and and he's going to read one for us, which is awesome. I want to say one thing. Rediscovered Books, one more event on the 20th. Lois Levine has written a novel from the point of view of the nurse in Romeo and Juliet, and so she'll be reading and speaking to that uh, that new novel that she has, so called Juliet's Nurse, oddly enough. But all right, well, thanks so much, you guys, for showing up. We'll do some Q and A after Al reads, and then we'll go off into the night. Here we go, Alan Heathcock. Hello. Thank you, Chris, for the nice intro and for hooking us up with this uh, wonderful community event. This really is a cool thing. You know, this doesn't happen everywhere. Boise is a special place. No, seriously, it doesn't. You may think it does. It happened to me my whole life. I would go to places and I'd think like, well, this is like it is everywhere. And then I'd go to other places and I'm like, oh, it's like that nowhere. And Boise is kind of like that. I travel all around the country, I'm telling you. Boise is a very special place. I mean, it's a Monday night, and it's freaking cold out, and you people are sitting here. And I'm from here. You can hear me anytime. You can come to my house and, like, hell, you want to just read to us? Sure, I'll read to you. That's not true. Don't come to my house. Not to read, just to hang out. It's fine. Um, it's great to be here all night, and... Uh, get to read with my uh, buddy David Abrams, whose work I admire so much, and thank you to Polly and everybody at the Modern uh, for giving us this amazing venue to make this happen. So um, stories uh, are my life. I chose a profession so that I can only think and deal with stories, but um, there's a part of a crusade I have that is to explain the importance of story to the entire world because oftentimes the idea of reading and stories gets pushed down and diminished in terms of its importance for anybody. I think it's as important as anything and I'm going to try to prove it to you. So my father, when I was a kid, um, took me to the edge of this cornfield um, not far from where he grew up, Carmi, Illinois. And he told me a story that he heard as a kid, a local legend about a man named Amos Daly. And he took me to the cornfield, and he made me look up the hillside, and he said, now, just up over that knob, there's a, a little mine shaft, just this little crummy coal mine. There were only... Six people who worked on this coal mine, these men, poor, sad men trying to eke a living out. And one of the men, named Amos Daly, lived on this land. And not only did he work in the coal mine, but he also took care of a team of horses that were harnessed to a cable that went through some gears that pulled an elevator up and down and got the men down into the mine every day to do their work. So on one day, it was time for the men to come up. And they were hollering for Amos, but there was a kink in the cable. And so Amos leaned over the mine shaft and yelled down, give me a minute, I'm trying to figure it out. When one of the horses got spooked and they reared, 
And that cable came unkinked, and the elevator came down right onto Amos's neck. And Amos's headless body popped up. And it just by instinct, as if led by his own heart, started to run out of the mine and into the corn, just swimming and flailing through the corn up over the hillside, trying to get back to his home, to his wife and his three children, running and running a headless body. And he said, now it's dusk. And if you look up there in the corn, you can see him running out there, out in the cow corn, forever just running, trying to get home. And it was like magic. For I would look out there, and you can see the corn party and this wild path being run out there. Oh, I've told this story many times. Just about every time someone says, now, why the hell would your father tell you that kind of story? I'm not trying to prove that we're freaks, though we are. I have no problem with that. But it's this question of why, 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 and it's a valid question, why? Why would he tell that story to me? When my book came out a couple years ago, I started to get interviewed and the question that I was asked over and over in some form or another was why? You know, why do you write? Why do you write what you wrote? In other words, what's the matter with you? you know? <laughs> and it's a tricky question. It's a difficult question to answer. I mean, that you're just doing something is enough, but then for, why are you doing? Why did you all come? I'm going to try to answer that. Why did you order? What drink you ordered? Why did why why are you wearing that kind of coat? Why? Throw, add why to anything, and it makes it more difficult. So I, I started doing interviews, and I you can kind of track my progress in trying to answer the questions if you go chronologically through interviews I was giving. And one um, particular interview is for Montana Public Radio. Uh, it was one of those where people around the country can listen to it via streaming. My mom was listening, and I said, uh, I come from a family of storytellers, which is true. I've proven that on both sides of my family, but that I was the first writer in my family. And as soon as I got done with the interview, phone rings, and that's my mom. And my uh, mom said, you are not the first writer in the family. And I'm like, well, who the hell else is writing? <laughs> I don't know anybody else who reads, let alone writes in, in our family. And she said, well, I'll send you some stuff. And so about a week later, I got an uh, envelope in the mail, and inside were uh, 12 uh, typed pages. And it was the diary of a man named Frank Barker, which would be my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather um, on my mother's side. Never seen this stuff before. We, we didn't even know it existed. And I started reading these pages, and I was completely blown away. There were, there were two things that struck me. First of all is just the, the prose. Like the, I thought I was weird because words were important to me. And stories were important to my family, but words were important to me. 
And I thought, I don't know where this is coming from. And then I read this. And so let me, let me read you a sentence from Frank Barker's diary. I'm getting old. I've got to take off my glasses so I can see. On the return trip, William cut a cottonwood with at the river and used it for a whip. And after arriving at the home near Old Pigeon, he stuck it into the damp earth near the spring. Uh, spring at the home near Old Pigeon, he stuck it in the damp earth uh, near the spring, and the resulting tree blew down only a few years ago, and saplings may yet be found about the stump. Let me try that again. On the return trip, William cut a cottonwood rith at the river and used it for a whip. And after arriving at the home near Old Pigeon, he stuck it into the damp earth near the spring, and the resulting tree blew down only a few years ago, and saplings may yet be found about the stump. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful sentence. Nine years in grad school, I went to write sentences. Like a man who was just a farmer. I mean, what we know about Frank is he had very little land, was a farmer. I mean, if they had any books in the house, it'd be, what, the family Bible? Not much else. But I see evidence of care, like words meant something to him. And so I felt a little bit less alone with my freakishness, like maybe words were already in me, like the evidence of that care. And then there's kind of the content, uh, his preoccupations of what he was writing about struck me. So here's another little bit. After passing the present site of Brandenburg, Kentucky, the party was attacked by Indians, and those not killed were made prisoners. It is said that one of the Barker boys tried to escape by swimming the river, but was killed in the water, and his body caught, and the heart taken out and broiled, and an effort made to compel his mother to eat it. However, this she refused to do. It's like I make up stories. Amos Daly isn't real. My dad makes up stories. But this is real. This is real. And it's 12 pages like this. It's completely profound stuff. My poor wife, Rochelle, was in the other room. I'm just screaming out like, listen to this, and reading more. But the main thing I thought about is why did he write it? When, when I ride, I have some understanding, I've had some understanding that I want to be this bizarre thing called a rider, and that uh, if I do my job well, I might have a, a thing called a reader on the other end, or that I might be standing out talking to people on a cold night and telling them stories that I've written. But he was a farmer, no one knew this existed. Why, why is he writing? What is in it for him? And that was a, a profound moment for me in, in the why. <laughs> why does anybody do it? And it was about that time I was reading, uh, rereading uh, The Diary of a Young Girl, The Diary of Anne Frank. Hopefully most all of you have read that. If you haven't, you should. And... Um, I had a bit of a revelation reading that. So let me read you a little bit about of that. Let's see what I read. Let me get my light back here.
Okay, here's from the diary of Anne Frank. A voice sobs within me. There you are. That's what's become of you. You're uncharitable. You look supercilious and peevish. People dislike you and all because you won't listen to the advice given to you by your own better half. Oh, I would like to listen, but it doesn't work. If I'm quiet and serious, everyone thinks it's a new comedy, then I have to get out of it by turning it all into a joke, not to mention my own family, who are sure to think I'm ill, make me swallow pills for headaches and nerves, and feel my neck and my head to see whether I'm running a temperature, ask if I'm constipated, and criticize me for being in a bad mood. I can't keep that up. If I'm watched to that extent, I start by getting snappy and then unhappy, and finally I twist my heart around again so that the bad is on the outside and the good is on the inside, and keep on trying to find a way of becoming what I would so like to be and what I could be if, if there weren't any other people living in the world. Ah. This, this, is, this is the last words. These are the last words we get from Anne Frank. It's a 15-year-old girl. I mean, listen, we have this monument over here. She's a statue now, and she's surrounded by quotes from all the world leaders. She's not. She's a 15-year-old girl who's worried about people thinking she's complaining too much trying to figure things out for herself. I remember when my wife and I were dating, and we were getting to the point where um, maybe we were in love, but we had both kind of had our hearts kicked around when we were younger and were reticent. And I remember saying to her, um, you know, if there, if there is a way that I can, by magic, make you become me, for just a moment, and you could see you the way I see you or know the way I feel around you, you would know that everything is going to be just fine. But we, we can't do that. We can't do that. And so the great grief of the human experience is that we are all separate. We are separated by the fabric of our skin and by the domes of our skull. And every day we struggle to be understood. And every day we struggle to understand those who are not us. And so we need help. We need bridges. And, and, and this is a bridge. The importance of our stories are without them, we are completely separate. There is no chance that we can have one consciousness ever truly touch another consciousness. It starts like this. Forks of light slicking up out of the east, flying over you and what's left of night, its black waterfalls, its craven doubt, dissolve like gravel as the sun appears, trailing clouds of pink and green wool, igniting the fields and turning the ponds to plates of fire. And the creatures there are dark flickerings you make out one by one as the light lifts, great blue herons 
with ducks shaking their shimmering crests and knee-deep in the purple shallows a deer drinking. And she turns the silver water, crushes like silk, shaking the sky, and you're healed then. From that night, your heart once more, and you're ready to rise and look and to hurry anywhere and to believe in anything. And we are connected to the consciousness of Mary Oliver. Without those words, she is wandering the woods by herself. And what a great gift, gift to have her. Or the woman at Macy's asked, would you be interested in full-time elf or evening and weekend elf? And I said, full-time elf. I'm a 33-year-old man applying for a job as an elf. I often see people in their street dressed as objects and handing out leaflets. I usually avoid leaflets, but it breaks my heart to see a grown man dressed as a taco. So if there is a costume involved, I tend to not only accept the leaflet, but to accept it graciously, saying, thank you so much, and thinking, you poor son of a bitch. This afternoon on Lexington Avenue, I accepted a leaflet from a man dressed as a camcorder. Hot dogs, tacos, video cameras, these things make me sad because there's no place for them, no community. They don't fit in on the streets. I figure that at least as an elf, I will have a place. I will be in Santa's village with all the other elves. We live in a fluffy wonderland surrounded by candy canes and gingerbread shacks. It won't be quite as sad as being some big french fry out on a street corner. <laughs> and we have the consciousness of David Sedaris. And what a wonderful thing it is. How much better the world is with his voice in it. And we go back to old Anne. I want to go on living after my death, and therefore I am grateful to God for giving me this gift, this possibility of developing myself and of writing, of expressing all that is in me. I can shake off everything if I write, my sorrows disappear, my courage is reborn, but, and that is the great question, will I ever be able to write anything great? Will I ever become a journalist or a writer? Oh, I hope so. I very much hope so, for I can recapture everything when I write, my thoughts, my ideals, and my fantasies. So I go on again with fresh courage, and I think I shall succeed, because I want to write. She had no idea. She had no idea. Forty million copies sold, translated into 50 different languages. One of the most important texts of a century, and it's just a 15-year-old girl writing about her life in an attic. They found it after her death. Why? Why do we tell stories? We don't want to be alone. We, we don't want to be misunderstood. And we want to understand people who are not us, and we need help, and we need bridges. So that's why I write. And that's why my father tells me about headless men running through the corn. 
He wants me to understand who he is. And that's why my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather wrote 12 pages about weddings and killings and all kinds of craziness. Because it happened. Because he wants to be understood. We walk around the world putting forth this public self of what's acceptable. But we have this whole other thing roiling about inside us. This lonesome self, this misunderstood self that needs our help. <laughs> and that's where our stories come in. So that's why I write, and that's why I'm here. And I think that's why you're here, too. I'm going to read a little bit of a story. We've got a movie coming out. It's 99.95% done. And a lot of local people helped out with it. Uh, local director, uh, directors worked on it. Everything's shot within two hours of here. Uh, and I'm convinced that it's a film that uh, people of Idaho will be proud of. Um, it's based off a story I wrote story that my grandfather told me when I was a boy. About a time when he was a foreman for Sinclair Oil, and his job was to drive around the oil fields to make sure everything was working right. And One day, uh, my grandfather, a truck came nose to nose with another truck. Now, the road was so narrow and the ditches were so steep that there was no way for the trucks to get around one another. So my grandfather told me that he got out of his truck and explained to the other driver that they'd need to put their truck into reverse and drive for miles back the other way. And the other driver did not care for my grandfather's suggestion. So um, my grandfather was a very genial man. So I don't I want to say that right off. This is out of character for him. So he told me, I remember it vividly, because he, he balled a big meaty fist and he said, so I went and got me a tire iron. And I, I hit that man until he went back from where he came. <laughs> That's the kind of story that'll stick with a boy. And I thought for a long time, <laughs> why did Grandpa tell me that? Other than it's not too strange in my family. And uh, eventually I wrote a story to make sense of it. I changed a few things. Um, I have, uh, instead of the man getting into his truck and driving away, uh, in the story I wrote, he, he uh, has killed a man. And uh, the father in the story is just back from war and struggling to assimilate his way back in. I'm going to start into the story a ways for time's sake. I think all you need to know is that a 15-year-old boy is awakened by his father and said he needs help carrying a, a body out through the woods and they're going to take it to this old Indian cave and try to, to hide it and get a plan together. This is from a story called Smoke. Let me try to get this light back up here. There we go. Okay, here we go. It's a huge microphone. 
try to see your paper with this ginormous microphone. All right, let's go. Bright light bloomed as the tunnel abruptly turned and Vernon crawled through a narrow chute to enter a stalactite cavern. The center of the cathedral roof had eroded into a natural and perfect oval and blazing sun poured through. The walls and floor shone like polished pearl. His father sat us on a slab of gray stone, one of three slabs amongst all that wet, glowing calcite. Vernon sat on a slab and hugged himself. The sweat from the chill had, uh, from the climb had soaked his clothes and now gave him a chill. I want you to know me as I am, Vernon, his father said. I don't want you to see me as good no more. A man what kills someone ain't no good. His father leaned against the damp wall and studied the sky. You remember that long road we took to get to the Miller Riggs, that long dirt road that went on forever? Yes, sir, Vernon said, and he remembered driving an hour on a thin dirt road. He remembered nothing but oil pumps and flat fields and a horizon that didn't buckle. Well, another truck came along that road yesterday. Seven years, I ain't never seen a soul on that road, and here comes some shiny truck like it ain't never been dirty. And you know how steep them ditches are. Well, me and Mr. Augusto come nose to nose with our trucks. I don't know who built that road. Don't know what kind of man makes a road. Ain't wide enough for two trucks to pass. Surely weren't Christian, whoever he was. And his father ran his good hand through his hair, resting his palm against his forehead. Mr. Augusto weren't backing up for nobody, he said. I ain't never seen the man in my life and told him he didn't have no right on that road, how it was company land and how I was the foreman, and he should just back on up before I had him put away for trespassing. I know you've been in fights, Vernon. I don't keep my head buried like you might think. You know fighting's a bad thing, right? I guess so. Oh, it is, Vernon, his father said. But when two men don't agree, well, then there's nothing left. We can talk in circles for days, and them trucks would still be nose to nose. I had that tire iron just for show, and before I knew it, he had a knife on me and cut me bad. And then something come up in me, and I hit Mr. Augusto across his skull. He fell like someone switched him off. Weren't but one hit. I thought a great deal about it last night. When a fire goes out, there's a smoldering and a little smoke left to trail. This man weren't snuffed like a fire. I switched him off like a house light. And it just don't seem right. Vernon thought of the homes in town with electricity. The diner and picture show of how their windows glowed in the dark night. I wonder where he was heading. Yeah, I wonder about that too, his father said. I've sure been wondering about a lot of things. I wonder if Mr. Augusto has a wife and children. There ain't no photos in his wallet, but ain't none in mine neither. And his father filled his lungs and exhaled and closed his eyes. I wonder if 
if hell is real, he said. You think hell is real? It wasn't a question that Vernon had ever studied. I don't know. I've been thinking a great deal about hell, Vernon. I don't want to go there. I don't know if it's a real place or not, but a, a man can't take his chances. You ought to lay on that bench over there, Pop. It's, it's in the sun a little. You ought to stay in the shade with those wounds. I've been thinking about Jesus, too. I figure... Jesus wouldn't have gotten nowhere if he was always backing down a road. Even Jesus had to stand and take his licks. Well, that man stabbed you, Vernon said. He might have killed you. Oh, he's got a name. Don't call him that man. His father said and opened his eyes and rose and walked to the dry bench in the sun. Mr. Augusto surely weren't going to back down, but he weren't no different than me. He lay back on the bench and covered his eyes with his arm. Vernon? Yes, sir. You know why I believe there's a God? No, sir. I feel a powerful tenderness for Mr. Augusto. It don't make no sense otherwise. A man would come after me, a man I don't know from Adam, and yet I'm still very sorry for him. If you wrong someone and still want to do good by him, I believe that tenderness has got up in you. I feel more tenderness for Mr. Nori Augusto than any man alive. I believe God is full up in me. Well, maybe the devil was in you when you did it. No, I don't know, he said. What's better anyway, Vernon, to have the devil in me or to have it be me alone? No, you ain't a bad man, Pop. His father shook his head. We are what we do. Oh, you ain't bad. I believe in that. No, Vernon, his father said, don't be confused. I'm about as bad as they come. Now just go on and bring Mr. Augusto in here. I need to lay still and be quiet a while. Mr. Augusto would have killed you. Well, then he'd be the bad man, his father said quietly. Now leave me be a while, Vernon. Gather wood for fire. We'll need lots of wood. Vernon studied his father in the milky light, searching for something in his face or the way he held his body that was evidence of the good man he'd known as a child. If God didn't want Mr. Augusto dead, why'd he let Pop kill him? What with all the killing in the world did one more man really matter? Vernon crossed the room and crawled from the shimmering cavern. Maybe awful things is how God speaks to us, Vernon thought, trudging up the lightless tunnel. Maybe folks don't trust in good things no more. Maybe awful things is all God's got to remind us he's alive. And Vernon pushed on toward the light of day, stepped out onto the ledge and into the heat, and it felt like leaving a theater after the matinee had shown a sad film. The glare of sunshine after the darkness, far too real to suffer. From the ledge, Vernon could see for miles knobs of redbuds, poplars, dogwoods. The sky was slashed with smoke. The woods below had been slapped by drought but were still generally green. 
And in the heart of this green was a circle of bare branched hickory, leafless as they might look in winter. Vernon care, climbed carefully down the cliff and began gathering the wood. His eyes were parched knots and his stomach churned, and soon he was inside the circle of barren hickory he'd seen from the cliff. And the dirt was stark and crag, the trees with the color of ashes, and the limbs like bones stretched into each other. The air smelled of fire, and Vernon noticed threads of smoke leaked from the flayed bark of several trunks. He stared at the sky, at heat waves rippling from the tips of black branches and squeezed the bundle of sticks on his shoulder and ambled off through the forest, singing what words he could recall from hi-ho little doggies. He took his time, gathering more wood as he went, and soon was back at the honeycomb rock. And then he stopped his singing and tied his bundle and began to climb, the song gone and the rock so hot he had to spit on his palms to keep them from burning. The body lay on the ledge in the summit's long shadow. Vernon stood over them with sticks on his shoulder. He nudged the quilt edge with the toe of his boot, and a corner folded over and revealed an ear and dark hair salted white and a cheek as smooth as ivory. That skin flustered Vernon, and he lifted more quilt with his boot, and a green eye showed itself staring into nothing. And then Vernon had to see the rest of Mr. Augusto, and he pulled a stick from his bundle and threw the quilt open. The man was thin and wore gray trousers pressed with a hard crease. He wore a matching vest with brass buttons and a shirt the color of a salmon fillet. He looked like a politician, like a preacher. The left side of his face was unscathed. The right eye socket was a blood-crusted pit the cheekbone collapsed. Vernon turned over the boulder to be sick, but there was nothing left inside him. And he ran into the cool of the tunnel and slumped against the wall. He steadied his breathing. And then Vernon descended through strata of pallid light and tried to imagine this man wielding a knife. He entered the cavern to find his father asleep and shivering on a sun-washed granite slab. Sunlight streamed a harsh tide into the cathedral and water trickling down the walls through tiny prisms. Vernon set his load of wood in the center of the benches. He lightly shook his father's arm, his father's eyes opened enough to show white through its lashes. I need your lighter, Pop, he said. And his father's eyes batted and closed again. And Vernon dug into his father's pants pocket and found the silver lighter. The damp air made the fire difficult to start, but soon the wood crackled and let off a vapid roil of smoke. His father now sat in a slouch, trying to comb his hair with a quivering hand, and Vernon took the comb from it and ran it carefully through his father's oiled hair. He was shivering, Vernon said, and gave his father back the comb. There's lots of fires around I don't think ours will draw much notice. His father nodded. Thank you, Vernon. Now, bring Mr. Gusto in here, please, and plenty more wood, several big logs. Use the rope to get them up here if need be. And Vernon found he could no longer look at his father and just did as told. 
He exited the cave and to keep his mind off unpleasantness, tried to focus on each singular movement, putting his foot in a pocket sandstone, breaking down sticks, pulling them, piling them on his shoulders, stepping through fern, dragging thick sections of birch he found not far from the rock and up the cliff, back down, feet moving, hands on hot rocks, stacking logs, high, high on the burgeoning fire. He dragged the quilt down the calcite corridor, Mr. Augusto's head knocking against the damp floor. Vernon pulled tenderly, as if dragging a man asleep and trying not to wake him. Soon he felt the heat from the fire on his neck, and he tugged the body as if entering a furnace through the cavern's mouth. The fire lashed flames the size of small trees, and the oval of blue sky was overcome by the smoke, and the cathedral walls now reflected firelight instead of sunshine. His father approached, and they stood with the body and the quilt between them. Help get it on the fire, son. His father said, and straddled the quilt, struggled lifting Mr. Augusto's feet with his one hand, and Vernon grabbed the quilt up under the shoulders. And they awkwardly dropped the body, and the fire was momentarily smothered, and the break in the smoke brought a flash of bright light. And then the sun was gone again and the frame flames grew livid as his father stirred the logs. Vernon sat on a granite bench, covering his nose to the smoke and facing his shadow flickering on the wall. Vernon, his father said, standing at his shoulder, I want you to take your mama out tonight. And he handed Vernon a folded wad of dollars. Get her a nice steak, take her to the picture show. He sat down beside Vernon, cradling his black-fingered hand tight to his ribs. When you come back home tonight, Mama will go and meet me at the old McAllister Road, and from there we're gone. Vernon wondered if the money his father had given him was from Mr. Augusto's wallet and allowed himself to peek behind at the fire. His eyes blinked against the heat. The quilt fabric burned away in spots to expose the body. Mr. Augusto's arm stretched to the edge of one bench, his shirt cuff wriggling with fire, yet the hand untouched. Waves of smoke scorched Vernon's eyes. He turned back to the wall. His father had slumped forward as if poised to be sick. You're gonna die, ain't you, Pop? He asked, and his father raised himself straight. Maybe I am, I don't know. Well, I'll go with you then. No, son, but I've got to. His father watched smoke billow black into the sky and then leaned into Vernon. Listen to me, son, he said. I've been thinking on what to do with you, and I want you to listen close now. Vernon wiped his stinging eyes and tried to focus on his father's mouth. Tomorrow, I want you to Pack your belongings into a bag and walk yourself into town to the Baptist church. Go on to Pastor Gould and tell him everything. Tell him how I killed a man and how you had to carry the body because I was too weak and how I made you help burn him up. Tell him you need help, that you need the Lord. They can't turn you away. Your fruit that's to be picked or go rotten. You go it straight, son, and they'll give you a life. You'll be a symbol to them of 
how someone can come out of the fire and become righteous. You'll be a symbol and they'll take good care of you always because folks need something to believe in, he said. And I'll be a symbol too. And then he was quiet and draped his good arm around Vernon's shoulders and his head lolled and then Vernon was looking into his father's gray eyes. This thing we've done, Vernon, he said, it's outside of so much. I've worried about all the things that'll change, but I've been thinking about them things what can't be touched. Ain't a woman in the world more beautiful than your mother. I was thinking about how much I loved her and how that ain't changed, and that got me thinking about my heart and how when it rains, your skin and hair gets wet and cold, but your heart don't know if it's raining or hot or windy. It just keeps on beating. He lifted his arm back from around Vernon. Well, that's how I like to think of it, at least. It ain't all clear in my mind just yet. And he motioned toward the cave entrance. Go on now. Take your mother out tonight and try and just forget about me. And in a gesture they often shared when Vernon was a child, his father kissed his cheek. And Vernon touched his father's hair and then rose and did not look back. He was barely conscious of his movement as he wandered up and out from the tunnels, and he mindlessly negotiated the sandstone facade. He walked the woods thinking he should climb back to the cave, that there was more to be said, that he should stay and help his father. But the ground passed quickly beneath him, and he did not slow until wire patching his boot soles snagged the grass of the dense sedge prairie. And then he turned to face what was behind him. Above the tree line rose the smoking sandstone peak. Black smoke smeared the sky like an oily thumb dragged down pretty paper. And in that smoke were brass buttons and blood. And Vernon's eyes burned from smoke. His hands and arms were beaded with black sweat. Smoke clung to his hair, his clothes, his skin. He tasted smoke on his teeth. Flames flared behind Vernon's breastbone. He coughed and spat and wheezed. He became lightheaded. He dropped to one knee and sedge swayed in his eyes and he could no longer see the peak. He saw only smoke-hazed sky. The sky had been sullied for so long Vernon couldn't recall the day without smoke. He lay on his back in the grass but could not quell the heat in his chest. And wind-blown smoke swirled in the sky above where he lay, higher, swirling higher. And though he longed to believe his father, to understand him, he knew smoke was not rain and had found its way to his heart. He watched the sky and thought of all the fires the world has ever seen. Fires from wars and fires from bombs. So much smoke. Where has it all gone? And new smoke curled beneath wisps of old smoke, drifting ever higher, higher. Where does it all go? And he inhaled deeply, and his insides burned. And Vernon knew all that smoke was now just the air we breathe.
Thank you. Well, that was uh, fantastic. Uh, I think you lived up to your great, 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 great grandfather's tradition of writing beautiful sentences, that last one perhaps especially. But some questions, um, if you guys want to ask, uh, I'd open it up to the notion of why'd you write that story? Because you brought out the anecdote that was told to you, but why, why did that become the story that it did? If you could just think about answering that. Oh, I, my grandfather told a story about violence, and I've seen a lot of it. And uh, trying to make sense of why we have violence in our world, how it works, how it operates, it's something that I can't get rid of and um, been in close proximity to. And uh, hearing my grandfather tell a story about it and me trying to make sense of my grandfather's story led me into an opportunity to, uh, to write about uh, why people hit each other with tire irons. And uh, uh, I think it's important to, uh, to think about this stuff and to, uh, to make sense of it. Um, it's unpleasant to talk about. And part of why I, I found out, I mean, in the end to this story about my grandfather's stories, uh, I went on a fishing trip with all my relatives and uh, I told them, hey, you guys know the story Grandpa told about hitting a guy with a tire iron. And I found out he had never told anybody. And so we went and asked my oldest uncle, Uncle Bob, and he said, yeah, that, that had happened and that they didn't talk about it very much. And uh, this is what we do. It's, again, our, our, our public selves versus the, these things that roil about inside us. And um, um, part of uh, what I see my job as a writer is to take that as stuff that is roiling inside me and, and put it out in a way that we can uh, look at it and, and see ourselves in a way that's bearable. So then maybe we can have a conversation about the ugly things that we don't talk about at cocktail parties. Um, and so that's, uh, that's why I wrote it. Anyone else? Put my gloves back on. Well, not everything has an answer. I don't think we have to have an answer for everything. I think that uh, the process of, of investigating, uh, oh, I'm sorry, the question, uh, oh, I'll try to get it in a nutshell. The question was, how, how do we go about writing or approaching writing stories that kind of uh, attack uh, questions that are unanswerable? Um, and the variety, did I get even close? Okay. Yeah, she said, you not having wisdom on these things, not having the answers, how do you go about writing the, quest, the, the stories that you just basically have a question? I think that's why you write the story. Um, I, I wrote this story to make sense of something, not because I made sense of something. Um, 
Matter of fact, I don't write about things that I understand. People are like, oh, why don't you write a love story? And, and I love my wife and I love my kids dearly. I just, I don't have a lot of questions about it. Thank the good Lord, right? Um, but I, I go to things that confound me and that scare me and that those questions are what I sit there by myself every day and I bang my head against and... Uh, I feel it's as noble a pursuit as there is to try to make sense of these things that come with very difficult uh, answers, sometimes no real answers. I mean, uh, we live in a world of things that repeat themselves over and over and over and again. And sometimes the, the answer to most questions is that we live in a world that repeats things over and over and over again. And that is the answer to the question. And, it's the thing that we have to look at to try to say, okay, while we're in this cycle of shit and love and joy and hope and terribleness, um, how do we uh, uh, at least get through it? And that's why we tell stories so we're not alone when we do it. Anybody else? Oh, there's one right there. You have to speak real loud. I can't hear. I can't see. I can't do anything. said, how do I overcome my fear of embarrassing my ancestors? <laughs> she said it nicely. <laughs> That's the gist of the question. Uh, I don't know. They did what they did. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, I don't know. If, uh, I know the point of your question, kind of like how do, how do we get uh, past the trepidation of sharing these stories um, of ha hardship and, and ugliness and... Uh, uh, um, I think, you know, is this the whole thing again? It's like we, we control our lives so tightly. We have this public persona that goes around, and we feel incomplete. I mean, even on our best days, we feel incomplete and misunderstood. My, my grandfather never told anybody the story. He, he takes me aside, a nine-year-old boy, and tells me the only person he told because he felt incomplete. We have these stories inside us. It's, it's like uh, we shouldn't be embarrassed about them, maybe. I understand that we are, and I understand that we get judged by the stories, and that's what people do. I understand that, but it's a part of who we are. We read the diary of Anne Frank. We have a statue of her, and most of the book is her being a teenage girl. The most embarrassing, kind of vapid teenage stuff. And it's a profoundly powerful story because we don't get, you know, uh, Gandhi. We don't have a great leader. We have a 15-year-old girl who has a crush on a boy and who tragically was caught up in war and killed. And so I think we have to be brave enough to understand that uh, the human condition is covering everything and that those embarrassing things are the things that connect us to others just as much as the good and glorious and uh, we have to be brave to build that bridge so that other people don't feel al alone with their own embarrassments and so we don't feel alone with our own embarrassments. Uh, what happened when I, the book came out, I had a lot of trepidation. I'm like, oh, what have I done? 
And, uh, you know, I had one, one story that's about, um, we had two um, tragedies of family farm, uh, farm accident and a hunting accident where people were killed in the family. And uh, I wrote about it, and I didn't know how the family would, would feel about that. And uh, one, the family thanked me for writing it. But the, then the very first reading I gave was at Powell's Bookstore in Portland, Oregon, and a woman said that she had driven an hour and a half to come and talk to me because she had read that story, and her son had just uh, four months ago been killed in a car accident, and it helped her look at some stuff. And I thought, my Lord, what a, a precious and intimate connection that we can make that we would not otherwise have made if we keep those embarrassing things to ourselves. It's a big, wide world filled with joys, but also filled with a great deal of suffering. And we can do our own peace in helping that suffering by not being afraid to share that we're part of it. Anybody else? Let's end on that. This has been Campfire Stories, recorded live from the Modern Hotel and produced by Radio Boise. Thanks for listening.